Hello and welcome to the Nomiki Show. Uh, if you didn't know this already, he, now you know that we are doing uh, special segments this week as I am off. Hopefully I'm having a great time on my own, walking around, eating, doing my own thing, really getting some fresh air, some sleep, some naps. That is what present me is hoping for future me. But while I'm napping, uh, you get to have great content still because we we put in the extra time. Um, and so many people have been very generous with their time in uh, joining the show. Uh, Alex Shepard, old friend Alex Shepard, we we got to know each other during the, the uh, IDC years, <laughs> to say, the, the Cuomo Wars of 2017. <laughs> um, Alex Shepard is a staff writer at The New Republic, uh, has a story out right now uh, titled The Media is Blowing the Afghanistan Story. I love this. I love this take because the media obviously is blowing the Afghanistan story. Um, there were so many hot takes. And I think like I, I wonder just just from the top, Alex, like, is this because there, the 20 year war, the fog of war, like what part of the 20 year war does the is there are there different forms of fog of war? Like, have we are we on the other side yet of like the Afghanistan war of, of pre Iraq war? I mean, there's just so many crazy takes in the last two weeks since Biden has pulled out that I I like I'm questioning I'm questioning like our own history, our sense of history. Yeah, I mean, I think that what you're seeing too is basically a large segment of the national media that simply has refused to learn any lessons from the last 20 years of war, particularly uh, the last of like 19 years, at least since the lead up to the Iraq war. And they allowed themselves, I think, to get played by whatever you want to call it, the blob, the national security interests in D.C., people who have absolutely no interest in whatever the sort of stated goals of the conflict in Afghanistan were. And, you know, we have stopped talking about those for many, many years uh, and, you know, created this sense that this uh, the way we were leaving Afghanistan was somehow inherently flawed, that uh, what, what I think it actually exposed was that these people did not want us leaving the country in the first place, that for the most part, these criticisms were founded on this really, really narrow rhetorical space, which was that the getting out of Afghanistan is a popular thing to do. We should be do doing it after 20 years. Winning is impossible. It's also hopeless. And yet somehow there was a, a much more, you know, a much more effective way of, of leaving. I think certainly there are ways to criticize the Biden administration for how this was handled, but those are pretty minute. And what ended up happening was that this tiny sort of rhetorical argument got ballooned into making the case that essentially the withdrawal itself was was illegitimate. And that, I think, is is shameful. It's reprehensible, really. I mean, it's 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 almost um, Shakespearean in a sense that the immediate rhetoric became about women and girls and 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 very real concerns. I'm not I'm not delegitimizing them, but suddenly those concerns were the most important concerns from the national security establishment, from neocons, uh, conservatives who watch Fox News all day. Um, and of course, you know, some some neoliberals who who were opposed to what, what Biden did. Um, but juxtapose that with obviously what happened in Texas. It was like <laughs> it, it basically the, the, the Texas move called the bluff on on all these neocons who are supposedly so concerned with women and children. Um, I mean, why is it the media is not like 
like, is it, is it because they're addicted to access? Is it that they're not diving deeper? They're not going further and saying, well, then what was the alternative? Yeah. I mean, I think, well, part of it is just shallowness, right? So for 19 years, we've ostensibly been in Afghanistan to whatever you want to call it, export Western democracy. I think this eventually got kind of narrowed down to saying, well, we're doing some form of nation building. But what that meant in practice was that there were parts mostly in Kabul where, you know, there was some semblance of gender equality where women could go to school and girls could go to school safely and easily. But in the rest of Afghanistan, while that was happening, the deal that we made was that we had this kind of version and this safe version in Kabul and the rest of Afghanistan was incredibly corrupt. It was violent. And the government that we were propping up there was doing so based on sort of brute force and also extraordinary corruption. It lost the faith of the Afghan people many, many years ago. And Gopal at the New Yorker has a really wonderful story about or very, very moving and, and damning story in the New Yorker about it uh, last week. But this the the mainstream press was always horrible at covering that other side of the story when it covered Afghanistan at all. And when it did, it, it tended to cover sort of very narrow, very elite focused section uh, in, in mostly in Kabul itself. So I think some of it was just this refusal to pay attention and to really understand what was going on. There's another aspect here, which is that the Beltway press and TV press in particular is they're sort of just knee deep in in the blob. They have incredible connections to the national security state. They tend to be very well sourced there and they tend to end up parroting a lot of uh, those perspectives, which aren't the, the perspective of mainstream people. And I think the third reason is also that they want to perform the fact that they are balanced, that they're not in the pocket of Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. And this was the opportunity for them to do that. And they did it uh, you know, sort of mercilessly. They went out and said this, you know, Joe Biden had promised to be a, you know, effective and non-chaotic president and just look at Kabul that, you know, that promise is, is in shambles. And it was done, I think, largely for the purpose of branding and making sure that, you know, they could go and communicate to Republicans, look, you know, we're not just Democratic shills. Um, it reminds me of, of, I can't remember how long it was after Trump was inaugurated. I uh, remember when he built the mother of all bombs and the, the, the press, I mean, MSNBC was just like, having orgasms over this. Um, and I, I, I mean, it was, it was it eventually, obviously they, they turned on Trump, but to me, that was just such a, like, like jarring, like jarringly obvious, you know, it, what's going on behind the scenes in terms of being so supportive of the mother of all bombs when there was no case for it. There was no, there was no national conversation. It was just sort of this like flexing of his power and they bought into it. And this is, by the way, the administration that like, you know, the deep state is out to get him. So what's more deep state than the national security establishment, um, if you're going to use that rhetoric? So it's just, it's just interesting to see how they they dealt with, you know, the foreign policies of those, both of these presidents very early into their presidencies, or probably yeah, around the same time, too. Well, yeah, I think that, that hits at another aspect of this as well, which is that, you know, most of our involvement in Afghanistan for the last 15 years, with the exception of, well, yeah, most of it has been has been aerial bombing campaigns, drone strikes, et cetera. And the press doesn't really cover these at all. But what that has done has created, I think, this impression that the media has been more than happy to push, which is that this is a war that has almost no cost for Americans, right? Like the price tag is reasonably high, but people for the most part do not die in this war. You know, obviously we had 13 Americans die at the Kabul airport. 
um, recently, and that was this sort of glaring exception. But, you know, we've had more than tens of thousands of Afghan civilians have died in these uh, in these aerial strikes and bombs, mostly in rural areas. And what we, you know, or just from the conflict with the Taliban and what that has created is this, I think, really lopsided perception of the war itself in which we can say, well, we're getting the, whatever the national interest is from this, which is having a base between Iran and Pakistan, basically, at little cost. So why would Joe Biden give that up? But there's, you know, from a moral perspective, the the counter argument is very clear, which is that it, just because Americans aren't dying does not mean that this is a war in which people are not dying. I think there's there's a related idea that it's a relatively inexpensive war, even that we've, I think, spent more than a trillion dollars there in the last 20 years. Uh, and these two ideas, I think, have created this really bizarre, you know, it's almost, it's like a British Empire style argument in which the gains uh, for American, whatever you want to call it, America's foreign policy or American exceptionalism are are coming at such a low cost. Why would you ever possibly leave? Um, how much of this is because of the crisis in media right now? Uh, you know, media can barely cover state houses and do investigative reporting. Uh, my guess is that they're not, you know, the local press is, the newspaper is not sending reporters out to uh, rural, you know, rural communities in, in Afghanistan to get the real story. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think one issue here is there wasn't a ton of that kind of reporting to begin with anyways. I think in general, this type of reporting, there have been some exceptions, I think particularly later in the Vietnam War. Uh, but, you know, in general, there should be a lot more of it, particularly of the effects of American military power abroad uh, than what we're getting. I think it's a little hard to lump it in with the rest of it, but I think the broader point I think is still there, which is that, you know, the American media has been decimated. And I think the very few people who are willing to be uh, critics of American foreign policy, American imperialism, whatever you want to call it, are not usually welcome in these kinds of spaces or when they are, they're treated like, um, like clowns. Yeah, yeah. And so what you're left with are people who who perform seriousness about American foreign policy and performing seriousness about American foreign policy almost always involves parroting military talking points. It involves parroting national security talking points. And it creates this weird sort of counter sense where, you know, withdrawing from Afghanistan is enormously popular. I think it's popular among something like 80 percent of the public. Uh, you know, including a majority of Republicans. Now, I think those numbers get kind of wonky when you look at the number of people who disapprove of the way that we're uh, withdrawing. But I think even then, it still is hovering, you know, somewhere around the 50% margin. And yet the way that this is covered is as if this is this sort of immense crisis. You know, if we had an 80, you know, there are not 80% issues, American politics usually. Um, and And this is one of those issues. And yet, it's being uh, handled as if this is the most controversial thing. And I think one thing that we haven't spoken about, which is worth underlining here, is this is exactly why people did not withdraw from Afghanistan earlier. It's exactly why they didn't do it. It's why it's certainly why Barack Obama didn't do it. Donald Trump may or may not have been serious. I think he probably was serious about it, but wouldn't have been able to pull it off. But the way what they were told, I think correctly, is that if you do this, you're going to get killed. And, yeah. you know, here we are. They're exactly right. And when there's so much on the line, I mean, it's, it's just, the timing of this is also obviously the timing was set by by the Trump administration. Um, but, you know, Biden didn't have to do it on this timeline. Um, 
you know, leading up to 9-11, the 20th anniversary. It's also early in his presidency. Uh, arguably, you know, is this going to turn into some sort of Benghazi thing? I think that they're going to attempt to do so. The right wing is already trying to do so. But it, it, the conditions are different. People, you know, th- th- there's a lot more on the line. And frankly, the Republicans still might win no matter what, w- Afghanistan or not, they, they might win the Senate and the House back. So all of these kinds of conversations come with this from the political lens, right? The, the Obama administration didn't want the negative press for for weeks and weeks and weeks, especially going into midterms, which, you know, he was, obviously that didn't go so well. Um, and then of course, into the, to the next presidential campaign, but he's still in Benghazi. He's still, I mean, there's, they're always going to come up with something. And so is that sort of what we think like the Biden administration's take was they're going to come up with something, no matter what, you might as well do what's right. So even though I'm technically future me is on vacation or taking time off, I should say, um, it's going to involve a lot of sleep. It's going to involve a lot of napping. And part of my sleep process, other than wearing this lovely thing that I wear uh, that monitors my sleep, uh, is to take CBD. I can't sleep a full night. I can actually monitor my sleep on days when I don't do CBD before I go to bed compared to days when I you know, do do CBD before I go to bed. I can actually see how many times I wake up in the night, how deep my sleep is. And it is undeniable that when I take my Sunset Lake CBD, I sleep a full night's sleep. It is fantastic. I don't toss and turn. I wake up earlier as a result. I wake up fresher. Sometimes I can even wait a couple hours before I have coffee. You know, that's what happens. It's really changed my life. Um, Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned company as we know so well, they actually are, they're based in Vermont. They took a Ben and Jerry's farm and they turned it, they diversified it to grow premium hemp. Not only um, are they based in Vermont and when you support them, you're in, you're supporting rural communities uh, that rely on these farms and it's so much part of their economy, but employees are the majority of the company and their minimum wage is $15 an hour. And on top of all that, They invest, they actually support independent media because it is so hard for independent media to compete with the algorithms and the Ben Shapiro's and the, you know, the two-step pipelines to Jordan Peterson that in order to be sustainable, we do rely on these advertisements from really wonderful companies like Sunset Lake CBD. And they recognize that. And it really makes a huge difference in our ability to produce content regularly to have great guests on, to have a team that helps us get those guests and gets us out there on YouTube, on Patreon, on fans, on all of these, on iTunes. This all takes a lot of work. Twitch, of course. And we can't do it without Sunset Lake CBD because they support media like like our channel, The Nomi Key Show, The Majority Report, of course, and The David Pakman Show. Uh, You two should try Sunset Lake CBD. I I take the tincture before I go to bed at night. I can also do the gummies, um, the fudge, pretty much anything. When I get migraines, I like to actually roll a, a CBD joint uh, and two puffs. My migraine is usually gone, which is incredible. Um, I know Dorsey loves the coffee. Dorsey, producer Dorsey, uh, definitely enjoys the coffee. And my family, big fan of the creams, the lotions, everything um, that involves you know topical... <laughs> taking care of your aches and pains, basically. Go check out Sunset Lake CBD at sunsetlakecbd.com. If you type in NOMI, N-O-M-I, you get 20% off of your order. 20% off of your order. They're always coming up with new products. So you definitely want to join their mailing list. They have special deals all the time. Go to sunsetlakecbd.com. Type in NOMI, N-O-M-I, 
and you will get 20% off of your order. Yeah, and I think that, you know, this is, to go back to the media point, I think that that is also a particularly uh, shameful aspect of the coverage here is that this is largely interpreted as what the political cost for Joe Biden would be for the images at the airport of 13 America, uh, American soldiers who, who were killed. It was constantly being sort of rammed through this lens of essentially what does it mean for a midterm election that the Democratic Party is almost certainly going to lose one House in Congress for. And, you know, meanwhile, again, you have a country that we've been in for 20 years that is not uh, a functioning democracy or a functioning anything in most in most parts that you know it has been made extraordinarily corrupt to the point that people were welcoming the Taliban back in large large swaths of rural Afghanistan and that wasn't being covered instead we had this weird funhouse mirror version of it in which the actual impact on Afghanistan again we, had, we were there for 20 years right like if things are going well at 20 years over after 20 years the government that America has propped up does not fall in six weeks without aerial support, right? You don't have people in rural communities literally welcoming the Taliban back because they will settle disputes in a sort of fair manner, as opposed to just saying, whoever pays me more gets whatever tract of land or whatever. Um, and, you know, I think for the Biden administration, I think that, yeah, I think they thought about it exactly the way, and this is confirmed somewhat by reporting as well, but that they, that they were thinking about this is like, look, we've got to kind of, this is the time to do it. If we're going to do it, we have to do it now. It's still early enough. You're going to get killed either way. And I think, you know, politically, this only becomes really damaging for them if they start to screw up a bunch of other shit too, you know? So if, you know, if the narrative is suddenly, okay, Biden ran as the sort of counter Trump and instead we're in, you know, swirling in the chaos of those years all over again. But, you know, if that is the case, then he's in trouble one way or the other. I do think that politically speaking, there's an argument to be made that if the if Republican Party tries to Benghaziify this, yeah. that it might actually be good for the Democrats. But Yeah, that's, that's fair enough. I mean, he if one thing's clear is that he's not backing down and he's being very clear and assertive about where he, you know, his decision on this. Um, worst takes that you saw in the last two weeks by the media. There's been a lot of Saigon. Uh, what else? Just give me some... Uh, some of the best ofs. Oh God, this is actually it's almost tough to say because there have been there have been so many. I mean, I think that the Saigon stuff was was particularly uh damning and again was largely like aesthetic. There's something worse than when people in the media become like art critics, essentially. And yes, <laughs> like the, the images are vaguely similar, but the situations are very different. And I think again, especially if you know, if you look at the whatever the cost in American lives, it's also significantly different now. And again, also laying this all on Joe Biden is a sort of similar, similar issue. I think the sort of narrative that's emerged recently uh, from Peter Baker and others, Peter Baker at the Times, that by you know that everyone is sick of Joe Biden talking about his dead son and using him as this moral compass, and that what they wish, you know, like the implication I think is that they wish he would be more heartless or or something. Um, is just be a robot. That's what we want you to yeah. do. Look at the data. Look at the numbers. I mean, yeah, oh my it's, God. it's really, I think, kind of shocking, but also gets at this issue as well, which is that, you know, being a tough guy in American politics can only mean one one kind of thing. And I think it also obscures 
the larger truth here, which is also that we are not kind of actually getting out of Afghanistan, or at least we're not out of Afghanistan until the drone strikes and aerial strikes stop. Um, and Biden is going to continue ordering those and has. Um, we're still doing those across the Middle East. So I think that that's like the other thing that's been kind of driving me nuts here is that um, I think in general, pulling out of Afghanistan is good. It's the right thing to do. It may signal a larger shift in foreign policy, or at least in American strategic thinking. But uh, but we will still be involved in this aerial war that we've been doing for 15 years, in which the media has done an exceptionally poor job of covering. We, we just don't cover things like drone strikes at all, partly because they happen in remote corners, but I think also partly because whenever they do happen, the U.S. government says we killed eight terrorists, you know, and, you know, even if five of them were under the age of 10. And what diagnosis, you know, how do you decide what a terrorist is? Me, terrorists at a wedding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I think that that, you know, that's been the big thing. But the other, the other big glaring hole in most of the coverage is no one is actually saying how we should have done this better. There's That's a lot right. of conversations about the order of operations that, you know, we should have kept people at Bagram Air Base. And, you know, I think in general, a lot of these things, no one is thinking about them for more than 30 seconds. I think, uh, you know, the the goal here, you know, I, I think the situation was completely chaotic and, again, probably could have been handled better. But the idea that it could have been significantly handle better, you better actually back that up with some, some sort of argument. And like, no one, no one has presented that case at all. And yet that is somehow uh, the foundational argument that you've been seeing for, for more than two weeks now. And it's one that I think is actually really been effective that it's been driving this decline in Biden's poll, uh, poll numbers. And yet on, on the face of it, it's completely absurd. Um, one argument that I heard that I thought was, was fair and, and I've experienced it. I was at a conference here um, before he decided to, uh, to he, he publicly announced he was pulling out of Afghanistan. Um, I was at a conference here and there were a lot of, of people from different governments there in, in the EU. And in particular, there were quite a few that were working in the actual EU um, who were very frustrated and said, you know, we don't feel like we were, we, we were spoken to about this. We feel like this is a unilateral decision and we're all supposed to be allies. And then I heard on of all places pre Barrara's podcast, uh, Ian Bremmer was on and, and, you know, I didn't agree with everything he said, um, as I rarely do, but he made a fair point. He said, you know, the least we could have done is spoken to our allies, uh, because they, you know, different administration, of course, um, administrations urged our allies to go in and, and put troops there. And, you know, they were not given <laughs> the heads up, like fully the heads up. So I, I don't know, you know, it's one aspect that sure could have could have made a difference. But of course, the press isn't covering that. I had to go to pre to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, I think that that, I mean, that's the other thing. You've seen that a little bit, which is this idea that this, I, I mean, it, uh, there was another another bad take that was essentially, the other bad take of this is that what Biden is doing is he's just being Trump, that he's, you know, advocating for American exceptionalism, that he's uh, telling our allies to uh, F off, that he's not consulting with these people. I think there's probably some... Some truth to that, that there should have been more coordination, particularly with uh, other countries that have been there for a very long time. And yet, I mean, I, my sense is that there's probably a strategic interest in not doing that, because one of the things that they were trying to do is also make sure that the, that the U.S. was not pulled back into Afghanistan. Right. I think that the reason why 
ISIS K is is attacking, you know, it's partly because they want to take down the the Taliban, but I think it's also that drawing the U.S. back into Afghanistan is in their long term strategic interest as well. Um, and I think the Biden administration has been very careful to not create, to try not to create conditions in which that can happen very easily. Uh, and yet I think you're still seeing this constant drumbeat to uh, pull the U.S. back in. And I think some of this has come from um, from our foreign allies as well, who I think want want wanted the U.S. to stay in for, I think, their own strategic reasons. And I think some of those too, which people are not talking about, are the reason why a lot of European countries are upset, upset about this is that they don't want to admit Afghan refugees. They're worried about the political cost of, of bringing in Afghan refugees. So I think while I'm... Well, I, I do think that people like Bremer have a point and that the U.S. should have involved our allies more. You know, I think a lot of this has to do, as it does in the U.S., frankly, a lot of this has to do with the domestic politics of, of, of immigration in the, in the EU. Yeah, I mean, I'm, as I'm sitting here in Greece, uh, by the end of the month, the refugee camps are shutting down. The EU is pulling funding from the refugee camps. Simultaneously, the government here, um, which is a center-right government that relied on a far-right uh you know, neo-Nazi uh, coalition, uh, they have decided that, that that they're giving the refugees 150 euros for one month to find housing and jobs. Because it's so easy in Greece for everybody to find housing and jobs. I'm curious how that's going to play out. You're going to, no matter what, you're going to have refugees on the streets. You're going to, there's, this is the problem is it's not, you got to actually deal with the crisis when, when it's dealt with. One thing I'm just going to throw at you, and I know this isn't necessarily a media take, or if you've heard it in the media, is um, you know the money that you know our 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 involvement in Afghanistan was essentially laundering money to the Taliban. You know when we so when you have this this government that basically like we've been investing in for the last 20 years and it falls apart and you know basically they they like they blow blow them out like they're candles. Alternatively, that money is no longer going to be going into the pockets of the Taliban. And can the Taliban continue to hold its power without having the U.S. Um, present there? Meaning the money yeah, this the is going to be. I mean, I think there's going to be. Well, I mean, there's the other question is what the U.S. does about if the U.S. decides that the Taliban is a better uh, is a better force than ISIS-K, for instance. And I feel like you could create another situation in which. The U.S. is essentially finding some sort of covert way to prop up um, the Taliban to, you know, create a, a semblance of stability so that, which would be ironic given why we entered Afghanistan in the first place, so that a group does not export terrorism using various parts of Afghanistan as a base. Um, what, you know, we're certainly not going to recognize the Taliban as the government. I think, again, we have been covertly involved uh, to uh, extraordinarily destructive ends in Afghanistan since 1979. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, we've been funding the Taliban directly or indirectly, uh, since more or less since then anyways. Um, but, you know, I think one of the big questions is what the, what the Taliban's sort of strategic goals are in Afghanistan as well. And if they are what they say that they are and what they have been more or less since the 1990s, which is, to just run Afghanistan as an uh, as a, a, a Islamic emirate uh, or whatever, then you know I, I could see those are not that's not a particularly large goal, even though Afghanistan is you know one of if not the poorest country in the world. So I think you know what happens there. I think you know the tragic thing is that 
you know, I think it was often a fig leaf or, and at times a scam, but there was a humanitarian component of American involvement. And I think it did improve the lives of a, of a lot of people. It also, I think, damaged the lives of a lot of people as well. Uh, and I think that project is, is functionally over now. Right. Um, which goes back to the refugees. Alex Shepard, Great conversation. Great piece. Go check it out. It's in the New Republic right now. Alex Shepard is a staff writer at the New Republic. The media is blowing the Afghanistan story again. (laughs) That's where we are. I appreciate you. Thanks for joining us. Come back soon. It's always good to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks.